No, 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 seriously, in all seriousness, list of things we don't do on the podcast, get up and leave, move the camera, brandish weaponry. We'll brandish the heresy button, and the Spanish Inquisition was a weapon. Hello everyone, and welcome to Theotable, where angels dancing on the head of a pin can change your life. I'm Aiden, also known as Celtic Catholic Fire. I'm Matt. I'm also known as Gamby. I'm Jarek. And I'm Julie. So, I'm sorry. Our topic today is Mary, and so uh, specifically what we want to talk about is Mary as Mother of the Church. So on March 3rd, the Vatican, specifically the Pope, added another Memorial Day to the calendar. So from now on, the Monday after Pentecost will be the Memorial of Mary, Mother of the Church. This title touches on a lot of topics of special interest to Catholics, including Mary and the Church. So, why do we call Mary the Mother of the Church, and why do we care? I mean, my question is more, why don't we call her Grandmother of the Church? <sighs> okay, okay, okay. But, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me just explain. Since the earliest times, since the earliest centuries of the Church, we have always called the Church our Mother. We still call our Mother Church. So if Mary is Mother of the Church, and the Church is our Mother, does that make Mary our Grandmother? Um, I, I think when we call the Church our Mother, we're speak Like, when, when we say Mary's our Mother, we're talking about individual not individual members, but the church as members, the church as the members of the church, not as an institution. So well, humorous as it may be to think of Mary as the grandmother of the church, why when we say church and Mary mother of the church, we mean the people. The, the beginning of the church being with Mary, with the apostles on Pentecost. Right, this is really... Go ahead, go ahead. Um, also, there's the idea, I think, of... If we look at the Pauline epistles, um, there's all these depictions, especially in the beginning of Ephesians, of Christ as the head of the church, and Mary being the mother of Christ. Hence, Mary is the mother of the church, because Mary is the mother of the church's head. Right, right. But I find this parallel, actually, between Mary being the mother of the church and the church being our mother is really interesting. Because, yes, you could joke and say she's the grandmother of the church, but in some sense the imagery that Catholics have used throughout history for the Church is very similar and very parallel to the imagery the Church has used for Mary. Uh, Revelations chapter 12, I think, is a great example of this. It's the great sign that appears in heaven, the woman crowned with the with crowned with 12 stars, standing on, the, standing on the moon, clothed in the sun. Imagery used in the uh, shroud, not shroud, wow, the um, Tilma of Guadalupe, by the way, the Our Lady of Guadalupe. Um, but basically... A lot of interpreters didn't see that as Mary for a long time. That was seen as an image of the church. Because the church, in some sense, gives Christ to the world. Because we consecrate the Eucharist, or the priests consecrate the Eucharist, I should say. And we make Christ known, loved, and served, to quote the venerable congregation of the Holy Cross. Um, that we as Catholics go out and make Christ really present in the world. We're his body, we're his hands and feet. Mm-hmm. And so in that way, the church and Mary... Had, are very similar, that Mary is in some sense an archetype of what the entire church should be. Mm-hmm. And also, like, sort of along that point, if you look at scriptural passages, 
um, particularly scriptural passages in the Old Testament, which Catholics read to be sort of four figurements of Mary or four figurements of the Church, they're often the same passages. Especially if you look at books like Wisdom or books like the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs, you have passages which are being applied both to Mary in one reading and to the Church in another reading. Because they're both, in a sense, feminine counterparts to Christ. Mary is the new Eve, and church is the spot, and the church is the spotless bride of Christ. Um, and the church is still doing that today. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't they include Mary at the end of uh, the document from Vatican II, Lumen Gentium, rather than making her a separate document, which was originally a debate when we were talking about how to be mm. the light to the someone who knows Latin translate, but Lumen Gentium. <laughs> yeah. Light to the Gentiles. Light to the, light yeah, to the light nations. To Gentiles, yeah. Light to the world. Um, it can sometimes be difficult to think of how this perfect person, like the mother of God, like how do how are we supposed to reproduce that? But they put her right there because the images are still the same. The church mm. and Mary. Now, I have a question. I know I'm the one who was always prompting these questions. Um, but I have a question regarding the similarities between yeah. Mary and the church. So we say that with regards to Mary being mother of the church, it's in regards to her individual members, not to the institution of the church itself. But I feel like, in a way, but, couldn't you make the argument that she is more closer to the actual, like, I guess I should be phrasing this a little bit differently. Um, with regards to Mary and her comparison to the church. I guess it, would make, it makes more sense in my mind that she's compared to the institution primarily because I believe that the church is guided by the Holy Spirit and, you know, it is infallible, essentially. It's likewise, you could see that the Spirit acted in Mary's life with regards to the Immaculate Conception and the fact that she was preserving original sin. Likewise, is the Church preserved from sin as an institution, but it's not necessarily see that with regards to members. And that's why, I guess, mm. that's why I'm a little confused, because we obviously apply this title yeah. to her with regards to the members of the Church, her being mother of the members of the Church, but with regards mm -hmm. to the institution, we must, yeah. like, whenever we say you know, statements about the church, a lot of times are also statements that are akin to what we say about Mary, too. I think there's a difference, there's a difference there between Mary doing the action of mothering and a different topic we spoke of, which was the parallels between Mary and the church. Because I think this, the point was more Mary, wasn't Mary as an individual mother to the individual members of the church. It was Mary mothering the church, church as individual members, not as institution. Not saying Mary individually to each member. It was, the members were oh. the definition of church. But I think there's a sense in which Matt, I, I, I don't, yeah, I don't think we should limit it to one or the other. I yes. think there is a sense yeah. in which Matt is right about talking about Mary as the mother of the institution. Especially if we take the typology out of Christ as head of the institution in, in, in Ephesians and in Romans and in other places and Mary as the mother of Christ. And then, you know, it fits into other Marian titles, like Mary is queen of heaven. She's not just queen of all the members of heaven, but she is the queen of heaven and earth. Um, right, right. Because there's actually a rich 
imagery throughout church history of calling Mary the neck of the body of Christ. It's not necessarily mm. the most glamorous image, but the yeah. idea is the neck is what connects the head to the rest of the body. So Mary being the neck of the church, mm-hmm. she is what connects Christ to his body, the church. The, and once yeah. she, gave, she gave the church Christ, and she gave Christ the church by bearing him in a room and giving birth to him. But more importantly, like she mediates, she intercedes for the church. Um, we, the Catholic doctrine, I don't remember if this is in the 1800s or in the 1900s at this point, but that Mary is the mediatrix of all graces. That well, actually, I have the, that's not one of the official. Things. It hasn't wow. technically yeah. been. Declared yeah, yet. my bad. That's my bad. It's not one of the official ones yet. But it is a title that she's been called the mediatrix of all graces, insofar right. as like. Christ came to the world through her, and Christ is the absolute mediator between God and man. Well, it's, it's and, that, and, and there were it's, old it's pictures. It's more than just and, like, that she you know, gave us the absolute for mediator. The mm-hmm. Well, right, right. I mean, that's true. That's true. She did give us the absolute and complete one-for-all mediator between God and man and Christ. And so in that yeah. sense, she's the mediator of all graces. But there's a more important sense. There's a much more important sense than that. Because the big reason we call Mary Mediatrix is that Christ has willed, because she is his mother, and because she has followed him so perfectly and cooperated with God's grace so perfectly in her life, that he has willed to allow her, to grant her the grace to participate in the giving Mm -hmm. of every grace. In other words, that she Mm -hmm. intercedes for every grace that is given. Yeah. Because ultimately, that's what God wants us to do. That... That's yeah. why she's the image of the church in that way. That's we are supposed to do the same thing, and Mary is our model in that way. Yeah, and if we look like, if, for example, at like the typology of the wedding of Cana, it is Mary who tells the servants to do whatever Christ tells you. It is Mary who speaks to Jesus and says, "We're out of wine," and then Jesus then says, "Woman, do you not know that I know my time?" or whatever exactly it was he said. But the point was, Mary is there as an intercessor. As someone who does, in a sense, mediate between Christ and his salvific action and us, who are running around looking for more wine. <laughs> I mean, not, a, not a bad thing to do, certainly. But... <laughs> <laughs> Says the only person on this podcast who's overage. I mean, hey, I appreciate my dinner and this number of other things, so... But that's an aside. Um, but uh, I, I feel like, though, that we have to be careful with the language that we use with regards to Mary as being the neck of the of the head of the uh, being the neck as a connector between the head and the body. I understand it in that context, but I, I recall in my um, in one class that I was in uh, with Maxwell Johnson, and he was that a Notre Dame professor of theology. Yes, he's a professor of liturgical studies over at Notre Dame. He. Um, he said that one of the concerns of calling Mary the neck is that what does the neck do? It doesn't just hold the head, it turns the head as well. Implying that like Mary mm. is changing Christ's mind or is, is in a sense the reason for why Christ like fulfills all of these wishes is only because <laughs> Mary says so, in other words, because Jesus is in the mind of Maxwell Johnson, a mama's boy, I guess. <laughs> I mean, is he wrong? It's a virtuous thing to be. It's a virtuous thing to do. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so I guess, I, you know, I'm always very concerned when we talk about Mary in the context of body parts. Um, but, yeah, no, but I understand, too, that it's a good image, too, because she is, 
in a way, a mediator between Christ and between us. And I know a lot of people will say, well, you know, why should we have a mediator between, you know, us and Christ in the first place? But that just goes in hand in hand with the communion of saints and that doctrine. Whether Yeah, and, well, and guess what else mediates between Christ and us? The church does. The church is also a mediator between Christ, her head, and we, her body. And in that sense, there's another parallel between Mary and the church. True. Sure. I was also going to just say that with regards to like the communion of saints, I mean, like, you know, the typical justification goes that, you know, I can also pray for you, and you can pray for me, and I can pray for all of you guys. Um, you know, in a way, you could say that we're mediators, in a sense. Yeah, we're intercessing for each other. You know, yeah, we're intercessing for each other, and, you know, no doubt in our minds that the Mother of God who has been given every kind of possible grace by her son uh, would be able to do the same. But yeah, I really, really like the uh, the idea of um, there being a problem with the neck turning the head. Um, <laughs> because, honestly, it goes back to this whole issue with the community of saints, because it's such a common misunderstanding about prayer. Was, we can think of this and apply it to our own lives sometimes, too, that we're interceding for someone or some cause, and we feel like we're, we're trying to change God's mind, or trying to influence God's decision-making in some way. And that's not how this works. No prayer is... The prayers of the saints, our prayers on earth, the prayers of the church, that's not how this works. Um, on what Aiden was just saying, I was thinking along the lines of the neck being a problematic image, because the neck turns the head. Aiden just expressed theologically what I was thinking biologically is that when your neck turns, your, when your neck turns your head, it's not because your neck has autonomously decided of its own accord <laughs> to turn your head. Your brain has sent some kind of I don't I'm not you you, you send some kind of signal yeah, to yeah. your actual muscles and to turn your neck, which happens to turn your head because of how the body is arranged. But the same thing is true in prayer, where you are praying. Like it's like it's like the neurofeedback loop. Like you are praying to God, you send a signal up to the head with Jesus, God intercession, whatever, and then something gets sent back, and that might not be the same thing. God does His providential thing, kind of like our thinking, and then a response is sent back down, and then we act, and we, the neck, the body, whatever, is changed by the prayer and responds to the prayer. That is such an amazing image. I cannot believe I have thought of that. That's incredible. And it works. It really does. Yeah. <laughs> prayer changes us. Prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes us. Because God knows more than we do. Like your hand might be burning, but like your I don't know. That's your brain like taking. <laughs> I'll have to bring this up with Maxwell Johnson. Now. <laughs> <laughs> a huh. So in other words, when you're in times of trial, when you feel like you're being surrounded by fire, it's because God is cooking on a hot stove. <laughs> And you happen to be one of the hand molecules. <laughs> I don't think God would burn himself, though. Fortunately. <laughs> Can God create a fire so hot that he burns himself with it? <laughs> <laughs> no, this is for last week, not for this week. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> I mean, does God need to cook? Like, that's another... I mean, Jesus God doesn't need a stove. Fish. Jesus no, ate real fish. True, come and have us. Je- yeah, right. yeah, okay. okay, that's true. That's Proof. true. Prove that breakfast is the most important meal of the day, even though I personally don't believe that. But you know, <laughs> I raise you the Last Supper. <laughs> oh darn it! 
Okay, fair. True. That's that's true. I would also argue that supper time, evening meals, most important meal of the day. And the Eucharist is obviously the perfect example of that. So you know what? Checkmates to the last one. Hey, we can celebrate the Eucharist at any time, though. Masses are in the morning and the afternoon and the day before. So, like, the Mass gives equal benefit to every meal, because the Mass can be breakfast, it can be lunch, it can be dinner, it can be all of the above. And if you're like most Catholics, it's your one meal a week. (laughs) That's why Catholics are starving. That's why we're spiritually starved. Most only go to Mass once a week if you're lucky. There you go. That's the lesson. Go to Mass more often. It is food for your soul. Who's that saint who lived on only the Eucharist? I thought that was Claire of Assisi. I think it was Catherine of Siena who lived on only the Eucharist and water for like 15 years, something like that. Yeah. Maybe it was Claire of Assisi. Maybe I'm getting my wrong Italian woman. There's also one like more recent, lesser known one, but anywho. Yes, Mary Mother of the Church. Oh, right. Yeah, no, we're not the Eucharist. See, to me, that's beauty. Hey, Mary mediated a conversation about the Eucharist. It's fine. There we go. But see, that's the beauty. Everything comes back to the Eucharist. Actually, when I was, um, I used to uh, converse with Protestants a lot on the internet and evangelicals and just certainly anybody. Um, for context, I used to have an iFunny account, and we had a little Christian religion niche. My name was B1, as we are one, if anybody wants to go look up that account. But I had a rule with Protestants, and um, not a rule, hard rule, but usually I could get the the debate or the question back around to something with a minimum of two steps, and I could either go there through Mary to, like, the Eucharist or the Church, one of the two, or I could just go directly to the Eucharist or the Church. Um, but it was only ever took two steps to bring their very peripheral question, like, you shouldn't call a father, you shouldn't call priest father because of, you shall call no one father but your father who is in heaven. Um, yeah. It only ever took one or two steps, and often that was through Mary. <laughs> so, we just did yeah. the same. Mary, the pediatrics of all apologetics. <laughs> <laughs> New title. Mm-hmm. But here, here, here's another... I have another question with Mary. This doesn't pertain too much. Well, I just, we could probably connect to another church discussion. But I guess I remember, and this is once again through Maxwell Johnson. He's been coming a lot lately. Coming up a lot. Um, but he was talking about how JP2 at one point wanted to name and make it infallible through a new dogma that Mary was to be called Co-Redemptrix. Oh, yeah. yeah. Thoughts on it? I don't know anything about the history of that at all. Mediatrix of All Graces has a long history, but I don't know anything about the history of Co-Redemptrix. Um, I, not to keep bringing up iFunny, but, I've, like, I've talked with Protestants, so these are all, like, they had all the Mary and Eucharistic church questions. Um, and the Co-Redemptrix conversation in discussions often follow the same as the um, Mediatrix discussion, because similar principle. And my sentiment, because I even complete which one you spoke you, you spoke to, Matt, but it's not hard to get a Catholic to see the logic behind the title, but because those titles aren't um, super well-known and already well-established in the, in the popular imagination and, like, your common Catholic's mind, um, they might not, it might not have a great, uh, like, effect for the Catholic lay faithful to make this official, and it makes conversations with mm-hmm. various Protestant communities much more difficult. Um, 
and it might not have a great effect. So I don't see the point, but... Yeah, so the thing about the the Co-Redemptrix, it's, Julie, like you were saying, it's like the Mediatrix in that it's a name that makes ecumenism difficult sometimes because it's a very big thing to explain. And so maybe it doesn't need to be formally declared a dogma, but as a devotion, I think in some sense it's really, it really is worth it to keep bringing up. Because the point of all of these Marian titles is that Mary is the, has the fullness of participation in the life of the Church. She most fully reflects the life God is calling all of us to. And so the idea of the co-redemptrix, if I'm recalling, I did a series on this a while back for my YouTube channel, um, is some of these titles, that the prophecy of... of uh, Zechariah, when Christ was presented at the temple, that he said that a sword would pierce the heart of Mary as well. And yeah. so what that and means so is... so that the hearts of others yeah. would be open. Yeah, it was for the right. cause of her intercession to others. Right, and, and, and so when Christ was on Calvary, and I, honestly, I'm going to take this moment to plug the movie The Passion of the Christ, because I think it depicts this brilliantly, um, the, it shows the same idea that Mary really suffered with Christ during his passion. She most fully did what all of us are called to do, and to participate in Christ's passion. To, as St. Paul, I think, says, to make up the sufferings of his own flesh what are lacking, quote-unquote, in the sufferings of Christ, in the sense of, we are the body of Christ, and so our sufferings can be united to Christ's sufferings, and that can be a form of intercession, too. Mm. And there's also the passage at the foot of, uh, I think it's in the Gospel of John, um, when at the foot of Calvary, Jesus says, woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. Um, and that, I think, has been read variously as another sort of typology for John as, like, the disciple, John the beloved disciple as every believer, and that every believer has to take up Mary into, in, in the Latin translation of the Bible, you know, it just says, and he took her into his things, and they dwelt in the same home, or whatever it is. Um, the importance wasn't lost on commenters of the Gospel of John, that we should take up Mary into ourselves in order to fully understand um, what Christ's suffering on Calvary means. Because nobody understood it better than his mother did. True, true. Yeah, I especially feel like I agree with you, Julie, on what you mentioned about it being a problem with ecumenical relations as well. I think... I think it was mentioned also that when JP2 was considering declaring it, that the one who actually stayed his hand was uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, who became Benedict XVI, um, because he said that this would be a very big problem with, uh, obviously, Protestant denominations who don't regard Mary as highly as Catholics do. Um but also with the Orthodox as well. The Orthodox are very Mariologically focused. With their, they will always proclaim Mary as Theotokos to the to the end of the world. But <laughs> but Theotokos I means think, Mother of God. It's an honorific title. Right. Exactly. But I think that if we want to call Mary Co-Redemptrix puts her too far, at least in the eyes of others, too far on the level with her as the savior. Because obviously, you know, the redeemer is Christ. But in order to say that she is co-redemptrix, I understand, we, we as Catholics obviously have an easier time understanding her place in salvation history with regards to her saying yes to accepting the power of the Spirit 
to overshadow her in order for Christ to come into the world and to, for her to bring him up and to be one of his first disciples, essentially. But there's still obviously the problem in formulating, well, she was not the one to save the world, even though she had a very integral part in it. So, right, it's too easy, and to it's read not like she stands outside something we don't mean. I think the it's... most important problematic like formula would be that it almost implies that she stands outside Christ's redeeming action, and she doesn't. I don't think anybody, any Catholic theologian, would who would believe in Mary as co-redemptrix would believe that Mary stood outside Christ's redeeming action. Um, that would be very bizarre, and that's not something that I, any Catholic I've met has ever believed. Um, because, Jarek, you were talking about the idea that saying that she was the co-redemptrix somehow implies that Christ didn't save her, that she that mm-hmm. God saved her differently, or she saved herself, or some other thing yeah. of that extent. And so, I don't disagree, but in a certain way, that's people. That's been people's objection to the Marian dogmas for a long time. Take the yeah. Immaculate Conception, for example. The I took a whole course on this my freshman year of college. Um, but the whole point was one of the big objections to the idea of the Immaculate Conception in the Middle Ages. Uh, the great Saint Thomas Aquinas even had this objection that saying Mary was conceived without original sin somehow implies that she's not being saved by Christ. Whereas it was, um, I believe, uh, Don Scotus. There you go. Saint, Saint Don Scotus. Um, blessed, not blessed. saint yet, sadly. No. I'm, not, I'm not doing too well on my liturgical stuff today. My, my <laughs> game is off. But so, blessed Don Scotus uh, was a, someone, a Dominican actually who, rep- who actually countered Francis Thomas King. Aquinas. And, um, did I have that wrong too? Franciscan. You're yeah. Good. Oh. He would have guts to be a Dominican countering Thomas Aquinas. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Title of this episode: Aiden gets everything wrong. Oh <laughs> 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 no! So a Franciscan. That's that was the whole point. There was something of a philosophical series of debates going on between Franciscans and Dominicans for control over the intellectual sort of dominancy in Europe. Um, well, the point is, he came up with the reply that actually countered St. Thomas Aquinas, that Mary was conceived free of original sin, but that grace was given to her through and in light of the sacrifice of Christ. So that every grace Mary has been given is through and with Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And I think that's important Mm -hmm. to keep in mind. Yeah. Um, If I may offer the image that I hear a lot to explain the Immaculate Conception, because a lot of these, because the Marian dogmas are so, or and proposed titles are so interconnected, yeah. um, you kind of have to discuss them all. <laughs> but the image that people I've heard a lot to explain the Immaculate Conception and how Mary was saved, but differently, is that if the rest of us um, fell in a puddle of mud, mud being sin, if if God stops Mary from walking into the puddle, if He preserves her soul from sin, original sin, from the moment of her conception, from her existence. He has still saved her by stopping her from walking into the puddle. And I thought mm. that image was as ancient, was like centuries old, like the, like what you were just saying, Aiden, but I could be mistaken. No, you're, you're right, you're right. The, the idea that God saved Mary by preserving her from original sin as opposed to redeeming her from original sin, mm. that actually is very, very a traditional part of arguments in support of the Immaculate Conception. That does lead to a question, though, that sort of naturally comes up as a consequence of this, that if God could save people by preventing them from having original sin in the first place, why... Why that happen to everybody? Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I think... It's a big question. Uh, I mean, ultimately, 
It, it has to come back to Mary's particularly special place in Salvation history. I mean, it's not to say that we don't, in a way, but we're not Mary. We we don't play the same. We don't we don't play the same role in Salvation history. For Christ <laughs> to have entered the world, he he chose to enter the world. Actually, I should take a few steps back. He chose to come in all humility as man, because man is. Man is the one that has to be saved. No other animal has to be saved but us. And But he decided to come into the world in the most humbling manner possible as a child. How is he going to do that? He is going to adopt human flesh from a human being. But a human being already has flawed flesh, essentially. We've already had the stain of original sin. So, and we are sinful beings, but with regards to Mary, she, with her being preserved from original sin, from the outset, Christ was able to adopt her flesh in a manner that it was already a perfect vessel for him to enter into. Julie, sure, go ahead. To play devil's advocate for a second. So if 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 God could, with Mary's parents, allow the immaculate con- or not allow make the immaculate conception happen, why couldn't He just do that stuff immediately with Mary? Like why did Mary too have to be free of original sin? If God could have just prevented that at Jesus's own moment of conception, like He did at Mary's. I wouldn't say it's. I have an answer, but I think one yeah. of you might have better thoughts than I. I don't have an answer to that. It's, I mean, at some point I did, and I've just <laughs> forgotten it. <laughs> well, um, yeah, the way I've heard that explained, I've, I've been asked that exact question, and that got covered in this class I took, and the way I've heard that explained is that it wasn't necessary for Mary to be preserved from original sin, just like, technically speaking, it wasn't necessary that Christ become incarnate and die on the cross to save us. God chose to do so because it was fitting. Because it most glorified, it, it, it most essentially allowed creation to be glorified with God. It most perfected creation. It most allowed God's creation to participate in His saving work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That makes That's sense. Um, I heard that explanation. I, that's the explanation I liked the most. Um, someone also told me one time. There's two things I heard. One is just like a devotional thing. Like it's good to have a model who's not Jesus, because it's a little... It's, while it's intimidating to attempt to emulate Mary, it is less intimidating than trying to emulate <laughs> Jesus. Of God. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, but the more the second reason was more biblical, um, and it has to do with... There's Correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a point in time when Jesus was thought of as the, the tabernacle, so to speak, um, but that image in later times has been used as Mary, and if the Ark, etc., is so spotless, like, should not Jesus' own mother be yes. too? Yeah, yeah. Um, that makes sense. In the biblical but again, it's not yeah. essential. But God thought it was a good idea, and <laughs> aren't we lucky, because now Mary has. Yeah. yeah. And again, the, the, like, there is a lot of typology to suggest that Mary is in a very particular you know, status. Thou art... There's, the, the, like, the passage out of, I think, the Song of Songs, Thou art all fair, my friend, and there is no stain upon you, which has been used, you know, to be reapplied to Mary. There's all the typologies with Mary as the new Eve, um, just as Eve fell, so was Mary preserved from being fallen. It's her stepping on the snake, which bites at her heel, as was spoken of in Genesis 2 or Genesis 3. Um, 
yeah, all of those passages point to Mary being a very particular, special, unique kind of being. Right, right. And with that being said, I want to bring it back to something that Julie had sort of said in passing, that we're lucky to have Mary as an example. And it, mm. and, it, and again, she's, strictly speaking, not necessary in salvation history. God could have done everything without Mary. But he chose to do... He chose to participate in humanity. He chose to give us all of these graces through and with Mary. And through and with the church as well. Right? Exactly, exactly. Mary is mother of the church, yeah. Right, and so I think that's I think the big takeaway here, that Mary is our model in more ways than one, because she models the church. She models the relationship we should have with God, and the way we should be bringing God to be known in the world. Mm. Actually, Aiden just made me think of something, which, um, for people who, for Catholics, who might have a problem connecting with Mary, like, what why like why do we need her um i think aiden just said it's that we don't strictly but god offered us this this person this other way of thinking about and relating to him this i mean rosary um is probably the best known marian devotion but do you do you have to christian do do catholics have to have a special relationship with mary no but I think the point of this feast day, too, is to remind Catholics, like, hey, it's a really good idea because God gave her to us, so why not take advantage and of all these things he's done? And also on top of that, like, it is, it is the case that Mary is mother of the church, whether we see her as it or not. And so, like, our, our embracing of, of Mary as the spotless mother of the church, as the church as the spotless bride of Christ, all that stuff, it, 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 it's not just sort of empty theological muttering about things. It has something to do with the way that we live as Christians. Yeah. It has something to do with the way that we choose to imitate Christ, and it has something to do with the way that we choose to bring Christ to other people. Yes, yes. That being said, do we want to close it out with the prayer of St. Thomas? I think so. It's a classic. It Alright. So Matt, why don't you lead? Oh, yes. wait, you let me, the former co-president. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, alrighty. Well, then we will begin as we begin all things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Grant us, O Lord, minds to know you, hearts to seek you, wisdom to find you, conduct to you, faithful perseverance in waiting for you, and hope of finally embracing you. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.